This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And on today's show, here we are in the era of late capitalism, with capitalism experiencing its sunset years as it slowly descends into the horizon. So we better start thinking about what that means and what we're going to do next. We will be doing that and getting a guided tour of our economic world in a few minutes when we speak with computer engineer Paul Cockshot, author of How the World Works, the Story of Human Labor from Prehistory to the Modern Day. In other words, the topics we'll be talking about will be very narrow focus, focused on everything from prehistory to the modern day. Paul works as an, a computer design, uh, is a computer designer and teaches computer science at universities in Scotland. Named on 52 patents, Paul's research covers robotics, computer parallelism, 3D TV, foundations of computability, and data compression. His earlier books include Towards a New Socialism, Classical Econophysics, and Computation and Its Limits. You can find out more about Paul at Paul Cockshot. That's with two T's dot C-O dot U-K. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, you ever punch through the same interior door that you uh, paid $200 to <laughs> fix a year ago? Uh, Deja vu. Well, I assume it was hollow. Yeah, yeah. That's how, there's only way to, one way to find out if a door is hollow, and it's uh, oh, man. to punch through it at 3 o'clock in the morning in anger. My dad was so mad at my brother one time because he had locked the bathroom door that he put his arm right through the door and unlocked the door on the other side. And my Damn, bro- that rules. My brother said he was on the toilet, and he said, I've never been so scared in my life. We had that dent partially patched hole in the bathroom door the rest of the time I was living in East Detroit, and it was always a reminder who the big dog is in the house. Also, this weekend, I had a really lovely weekend. I suffered. I went to Molartopia on uh, Friday night, saw a lot of people at This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly drink and think. Uh, it was, had a lot of fun, I had some alert, um, and then woke up the next day horribly dehydrated and felt awful all weekend. I think I drank about 10 things of Gatorade, which was probably a bad idea because it's got salt in it. So I was trying to find Powerade in the neighborhood. I could, what a nightmare weekend that was. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. In the uh, Get Fueled with Molly column, headlined <laughs> Love It, Like It, Hate It, Hangover Cures, uh, appearing at the WGNO-TV New Orleans website, which disappointingly does not suggest Molly as a hangover cure, Molly Kimball suggests one to two ounces of apple cider vinegar diluted with six to eight ounces of water. Molly points out that the apple cider vinegar has a natural diuretic effect that can also help combat morning-after fluid retention and helps stabilize blood sugar levels that can be shaky after a night of drinking. So that makes this week's hangover cure one to two ounces of apple cider vinegar diluted with six to eight ounces of water and not 70 and 125 mg of MDMA dissolved in four to six ounces of Kool-Aid. By the way, uh, my plumber gave me a tip this week because he was over at my house fixing some clogs, Alex, and you might want to know this too. He said, put apple cider vinegar and some baking powder, baking soda in your sink, then plug it, then fill it up like about three quarters of the way or your tub a third of the way, then unplug it and do that once a month and you'll never have a clog again. Who knew that apple cider vinegar could unclog drains and cure your hangover? You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This Is Hell. Either my ego is way out of line or my paranoia level is through the roof, but I'm pretty certain... CNN is trolling me, personally. Every time I make the horrible mistake of tuning in CNN, they immediately give some commentary, make some baseless speculation, create some story out of the thinnest of air that is purposely meant to provoke me into passionate, uncontrollable feelings that cannot be expressed rationally. And at that moment, instead, in a peak of rage, the response is to lash out, often in the ugliest of ways, which is exactly what the troll wanted me to do in the first place, to get me angry and make me look foolish. 
Okay, trolls do more than just that, and their intent isn't only for you to make a fool of yourself. Trolls start pointless fights and annoy people online to distract them from the original topic or main point someone is trying to make that does not fit into the troll's worldview. Sure, they do it because to trolls it's sadistic fun, and there's nothing more sad than their sad lives enjoying being inhumane to others. But what they do, whether they know it or not, and they more than likely do know it, is that they normalize off-topic conversations being included within any debate. A discussion on climate change can turn into insults being hurled back and forth over diet choices, or even claims about the other's weight or anything negative about their appearance more generally. That kind of debate becomes the norm in the trolls' world, lowering discussion to nothing more than a litany of rude and crude non-sequiturs, undermining any chance at a constructive conversation in a democratic forum, because that's what trolls don't want. That's democracy. They're fascists who want to impose their will through bullying and intimidation, because logic and reality eludes them. Okay, so am I saying troll or CNN acts like fascist trolls? Maybe. All I know is every time I turn it on, it's as if they get a red light on in their studio. They know I'm watching, and suddenly on the teleprompter, a new script arrives only for me, only to annoy the hell out of me, Chuck Mertz. The first time this weekend was during the Nevada caucus, which looks like an incredibly undemocratic way to determine who the Democratic Party presidential nominee will be. At no point did I hear anyone on CNN say that this is not how democracy is supposed to work. At no point did anyone say what happened to one person, one vote, and everybody having a free and easy access to polling places. Nobody ever mentioned that this is an embarrassment for any democratic nation. If another nation did this kind of nominating for their leadership, can you imagine how condescending the U.S. news media and CNN would be about those people over there in those countries with funny names and their weird notions of what democracy is supposed to be? The worst part is this stupid process, and this stupid process will be back in, they're going to be back to this in another four years, unchanged, the exact same thing, as undemocratic and unrepresentative of everyone in that state as it is now. And the folks on CNN won't say a word because, hey, it's good for ratings, which is exactly an argument a CNN anchor made last week when it comes to the possibility of a brokered Democratic convention. CNN's Kate Baldwin was speaking with 2012 Obama campaign director Jim Messina about the possibility of the Democratic presidential nominee being determined not by voters, but by delegates dealing at the convention. Correctly, Messina said that if the Democrats nominate someone who did not get the most total votes in the primaries and caucuses, if they took the nomination from the leader and gave it to someone else, i.e. if they stole it from Bernie and gave it to Joe, or Mike or God knows who, maybe Hillary, Messina said it would be suicide for the nominee and the Democratic Party in total. However, he added, but it would be good for CNN's ratings, which wasn't funny. Baldwin then joked, and what's good for TV is what's best for everybody, and immediately said, I'm joking, everybody. But the joke didn't go over well with Messina, who I'm not certain if he actually does smile, and Baldwin's disclaimer seemed uncomfortable at best as if a producer was yelling in her ear like like one of those uncomfortable moments like when you're being sarcastic and you realize that it's a little too close to the bone a little too honest so why after that would i turn on cnn to see what happened in nevada morbid curiosity i guess and they were getting returns quicker than c-span so whatever that's when as the votes started being totaled or whatever the hell they do in nevada to pick a nominee there's beans in a jar, and there's a goose involved, and I think a top hat. Bernie Sanders looked like the, he would be the day's runaway winner, with CNN floating every anti-Bernie uh, idea of late, uh, like he will hurt down-ballot Democrats, the Russians are helping Bernie and Trump, Bernie will unfairly claim the nomination before being nominated, this part of, uh, pop, this part of the population, fill in blank here, does not like Bernie, Bernie's supporters are just too mean, besides he's not a Democrat, he's a socialist. The last thing that CNN's commentators wanted to do was talk about the story of the day, a resounding victory for Sanders. Sanders, who in the early running looks like the clear-cut favorite to be the nominee based on amazing organizing efforts that have been worked on for over four years. Efforts that have been so successful that they actually may lead to someone being nominated for president who calls themselves openly a democratic socialist. That's big news, but not on CNN. Instead, commentator Van Jones was busy claiming that Bernie is the next George McGovern, a far-left nominee who gets destroyed in the general election, and we end up with... 
Nixon, or in this case, Trump. Outside of the fact that McGovern wasn't all that left, sure, he supported a kind of universal basic income, but so did Nixon at the time. And uh, McGovern was against the Vietnam War, but so was anyone who wanted to win the nomination in 1972. Van Jones seems to be targeting the fact that the centrist Mondale didn't, or uh, the centrist uh, Mondale didn't, sorry, Van Jones seems to be forgetting the fact that the centrist Mondale didn't win in 1984. The centrist Dukakis, both of whom were laying the political ground for the groundwork for the neoliberal Clinton wing to rise to power, or that Bill Clinton would not have won either election if Ross Perot uh, hadn't run in the election. And another of their neoliberal pals, John Kerry, lost too to a president who was incredibly unpopular that launched the most unpopular war in U.S. history based on lies. And Kerry still couldn't win. So, Van, don't be concerned about Bernie being McGovern. Be more concerned that your pals Joe Biden and Mike Bloomberg will be the next Mondale Dukakis or Kerry. Apparently, I had forgotten the nightmare of the past two times I'd watched CNN because I was back at it yesterday, this time during their media criticism show, which consists of people from the media essentially criticizing people who watch the media, turning media criticism on its head. They allowed former Reagan administration official Linda Chavez to say that Trump and Bernie, lumping them together as one, which is another thing CNN is trying to do lately, are bad for the security of the United States, a threat, and that we cannot lead the world like this. They are both decisive without pointing out how divisive Reagan was during his political career and that you can trace today's divisions right back to Ronnie's right-wing revolution. What CNN did not share about Chavez is she currently sits on the board of directors of two Fortune uh, 1000 companies, Pilgrim's Pride, a Brazilian-owned multinational food company, and ABM Industries, a U.S. facility management provider, because... I don't care if she worked for Reagan 40 years ago. What do I what I care about is what she's been doing recently. And now I'm wondering why the hell do you have some director of two huge multinational firms, especially one that's in Brazil where the US just engaged in lawfare to overthrow the democratically elected government all for the purpose of benefiting outside investors? Like Pilgrim's Pride. Exactly what kind of balance does Chavez provide to the conversation, CNN? What criteria balances a multimillionaire who sits on the boards of two enormous multinational corporations? Because I didn't see or hear any anti-capitalists on that panel, nor were there any people from the Poor People's Campaign, like Sherry Honkala, the only person who could provide balance to Chavez that I could think of at the time. The next thing they were discussing was how Facebook apparently found that the majority of misleading political claims and outright lies that most disinformation benefits the far right. However, the social industry is fearful that if they address the far right BS as much as they should, as there is far more of the right wing crap than the right would claim they have the social media industry has an anti-right bias. Therefore, they're reluctant to stop as much right wing propaganda as they should because they don't want the fascists to get angry. First, fascists are already angry. That's their whole thing. So don't worry about getting them mad. Second, so you admit to being weak and capitulating to intimidation and bullying. Great job, Facebook. Way to show the courage to protect democracy. Third, why do we have to placate Nazis? I really don't understand. Who cares if reactionaries complain they're unfairly being targeted when they're targeting all of us unfairly with fascism? Yes, my watching of CNN this weekend actually ended with CNN rationalizing Facebook's tolerance for trolls, which makes sense. As all CNN seems to be is a bunch of trolls directing all their provocations at me. Which is why this is hell. Alex, we do excellent. Coming up, the truth about communism, what socialism is, how capitalism works, you know, everything about how the world works. We'll also have Rotten History and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio so clearly, and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. My guess is what you think happened under Soviet communism is not all that based in fact. I'm also guessing you believe your socialism is the only real socialism, and that at this time we're experiencing huge technological leaps like never before seen on Earth because we have such a runaway economy. Here to help us better understand all that and a lot more, computer engineer Paul Cockshot is author of How the World Works, the Story of Human Labor from Prehistory to the Modern Day. You can find out more about Paul at his website, paulcockshot with two t's dot co dot uk. Welcome to This is Hell, Paul. 
Hi there. You write that you look at the biggest change human society ever went through as we developed from being hunters to becoming farmers. According to modern research, this transition was neither easy nor immediately beneficial. So the problem is to understand why it took place at all. What can we learn from that transition about any possible future transition away from what we call and what we have as capitalism today? Well, there's not universal agreement on this, but there's a strong school of thought that thinks a transition to um, fr from basically a hunting and gathering mode of life to agricultural mode of life was something that was forced on us. It was forced on us by combination of population growth and hunting to exhaustion of the um, game animals, which people had depended on until then. So that, in a sense, what you've got there is an analogy to what's happening with capitalism destroying the natural resources on which industrial society depends, and therefore enforcing on us uh, a change to a different form of society with a different relationship to the world. So did we have no choice in making that transition? In making the next transition, will there be no choice? Well, people don't choose these things. These things happen as a result of circumstances. Um, we, we're not in a position entirely to say what the outcome of um, the current crisis that humanity is going through will lead to because we can't predict the future. But you can say that the, the mode of production defined in the original technical sense of that, that's a way of making things, the way of making things using fossil fuel-powered machines is coming to an end. And therefore, it requires a different way of making things, a different mode of production, to be able to survive in the new conditions. But what that will be, um, we're not really much better able to say that than hunter-gatherers were able to predict what um, agricultural society was going to look like. So how ridiculous is the demand then by people who are listening to or hearing from people who uh, might consider themselves as socialists or communists? How unrealistic is for them to demand to tell us exactly what the future is going to be with your socialism, with your communism? How ridiculous is that demand? Well, you can, you can talk about a lot of things and be fairly concrete about a lot of things. The things which it, you can be fairly concrete about quite a lot of things to do with uh, social relations. But what's much harder to be concrete about is technologies, because it's the nature of technological progress that you don't know what the technologies are going to be before they come. And technologies have a, an unpredictable effect on society. So uh, what we can say is that the whole structure of the world economy at the moment is not a sustainable one and therefore a completely different um, technical structure of that economy has got to come into existence. We can't say whether the transition process is going to involve a mass die-off of, of a large part of the human race or whether people will get through it. Uh, we don't know how food is going to be produced, where food's going to be produced. We don't know what um, basic production technologies we'll be using. We, but we do know that we've got to rapidly adapt to them and that we do know that um, it's very hard for rapid adaptation of that kind to be achieved in an anarchic market system. 
You're right. You're right. It was ultimately the development of technology, particularly powered machinery that enabled the owners of such machines to become the new dominant class. A freer and better paid workforce led to a more rapid rate of technical progress. If higher wages with more worker rights means increased technical progress, what explains the technical progress we have seen over the past four decades while wages have stagnated and union membership has decreased, which well, could and should have a negative impact? It did have a huge negative impact. If you look at the, the rate of improvement in labor productivity, um, it fell off enormously after the 1970s. Um, it, it, it's, it, if you plot it for a country like Britain, it actually has been essentially flatlining for the last uh, 10 years. So the, the, the rate of growth of productivity fell steadily from the 1970s. Uh, and had reached zero by the, the mid uh, first decade of the 2000s, and has been at zero since then. Over the, that's not just something affecting Britain. If you, uh, in my book, I've got a scatter plot of the rates of technical change across the entire capitalist world, and you can see that although the, the, the individual countries fluctuate a bit, the whole trend has been downwards. It's to it, it slide down to to barely reproduction rates. I mean, today, the present is not the period of rapid capitalist change. The rapid period of technological development occurred 100 years ago. Nothing comparable to the late Victorian, early 20th century development is taking place now. And you even say that this is one of the more controversial points I make, is that far from the early 21st century being a period of very rapid technical change, such advances are now much slower than they were in the 20th century. So what would you say to somebody who argues, look, I see these new smartphones every year, I see the new computer every year, I see the new this, that, or the other thing every year. That must mean that we are having greater technical progress than we've ever had in human history. How, how would you combat that kind of argument? Because I hear well, it all the time. Take a smartphone. What's in a smartphone? Basically, it's a walkie-talkie, as they used to be called in the 1940s when the technology came out, enabling you to talk at a distance, combined with a camera, combined with a television. Okay? Now, all of those existed in the 1940s. What's happened is they've been shrunk down. Um, the... The, it's incremental improvement on a basic device, which hasn't, if you take the, the touch screen smartphone, having been invented by Apple um, 15 years ago or so, the, the rest is just cosmetic sales details. It's like claiming that the fins on uh, 1950s Cadillacs were a, a huge technical advance on the rounded ones at the start of the 50s. Do you think we want to believe that we are going through technical progress right now? Do you think that there is a, some sort of social or cultural incentive to do so? Well, the upper classes want to be able to claim that they're doing so because uh, that's a validation of the existing social system. But um, compared to the rates of achievement which even the capitalist world was able to achieve when it had to stand in competition with communism, is much slower. You're right, capitalism has interacted with population growth and family structure. Early and late capitalist societies have radically different demographics. An exploding population in the 19th century fueled European settler colonialism. Now, in contrast, developed capitalist states are scarcely able to reproduce their work workforces. This shift has led to chronically depressed profit rate rates and stagnant levels of investment. It presages an existential crisis for capitalism. Does that necessarily mean, then, that capitalism is unsustainable, that it will inevitably fail as it is not a system that works over the long ter term. Is that why capitalism seems to be only interested in short-term profits, because it knows it's only a short-term system? Um, well, it, it, it's paradoxical that at the moment, when interest rates are extremely low, that uh, capitalists ought to be interested in really long-term investment. I mean, you think of what Keynes was writing in the 1930s when he advocated the euthanasia of the rentier class by reducing the interest rate to close to zero. Well, you've got that now. 
And it should be the case that he predicted that if if they reduced interest rates close to zero, then really long-term expensive projects like reclaiming land from the sea, building tidal barrages and things like that would become viable. Uh, because of the low cost of borrowing capital to do it. But we're not seeing that. And the reason we're not seeing it is that in order to keep interest rates low and to keep the economy going, they're printing large quantities of money. And by printing large quantities of money, they inflate the prices of paper assets like stocks and shares so that financial assets appear to be going up in price rapidly. And therefore, the rate of return that you can get from financial speculation is way above what you can get from productive investment. So that the whole impetus is into um, financial speculation rather than productive investment, because that is sustained by quantitative easing. So is that sustainable over the long term, do you think? Well, no, but what what happens is that you get the, a build-up of the ratio of debt to uh, real value produced, and it reaches a phase change point at which the system is no longer – the existing structure of debts are no longer sustainable, and you get a, a financial crisis. So it's, it's, it's inevitable that another crisis <laughs> – capitalist economies, the surplus available for investment depends on private profits. In a socialist system, it depends on the planned division of output between consumer goods and investment goods. In classical Marxist terms, socialist economies have a historically unique mechanism for the extraction of a surplus product. This mechanism underlay the very fast growth rates achieved by the USSR before the 1970s and by China right up until the present. What is not widely appreciated in the West was just how successful the USSR was in the consumption of mass consumption of goods. Why, if it was producing so much, was there an impression of continuous shortages? Were continuous shortages in the Soviet Union prior to the 1970s a created fiction propaganda by the West? And what happened in the 70s? Did shortages that had not happened before just happen all of a sudden in the 70s? No, no, they didn't. The, the, the period when shortages became particularly apparent was, in fact, the during the 80s. Um, when, again, this was due to inflationary effects, where there was a crisis of state revenue in the Soviet Union as a result of the policies that the Gorbachev government followed. They removed two or three of the the major forms of state revenue. They removed the money they were getting from alcohol taxes, basically, because they introduced prohibition. And that had been a significant part of their state revenue. They also said that uh, factories could retain the profits they made rather than the profits previously it had been held. These are state-owned factories. The profits all go to the state. And the reformers said, oh, you, if you hand the profits over to the factory managers, they'll invest them productively and the economy will boom. What in fact happened is that the you got a big government deficit, which could only be met by printing rubles. Uh, you therefore got a big excess of demand for goods uh, because of the, the extra rubles that were being pushed. You had price controls so that prices didn't rise, but the goods were just removed from the shops because there was far more cash chasing the goods than uh, goods being produced. So shortages became particularly apparent at that time. Um, There were certain types of shortages which tended to occur before that because, again, because of price controls. Things were deliberately sold at an artificially low price, particularly foodstuffs. And therefore, if there was ever ever, a... Sorry, not... You frequently got sellouts of types of food because people had more cash than was necessary to buy it. I mean, I remember traveling in Poland in the early 80s and 
there were these shops which we couldn't work out what they were. They had sort of uh, white enamel tops to them. Later we realized these were butcher shops and there was no meat in them. I then went and looked at the UN statistics when I got back for meat consumption in Poland as against meat consumption in Britain. And the Poles were consuming more kilos of meat a year than the British were. But you never saw empty butcher shops in Britain. That's because steak was too expensive here. It was a luxury that people in general wouldn't buy. Now, if you, if you subsidize the cost of, of key foodstuffs like that and make it very cheap, they just sell out. And you therefore get an impression of, of uh, shortages which wouldn't be there if the uh, authorities had paid attention to, to the law of value. We are speaking with computer engineer Paul Cockshot, who is author of How the World Works, the Story of Human Labor from Prehistory to the Modern Day. Paul works on computer design and teaches computer sciences at universities in Scotland. He's named on 52 patents. Paul's research covers robotics, computer parallelism, 3D TV, foundations of computability and data compression. His earlier books include Towards a New Socialism, Classical Econophysics, and Computation and Its Limits. You can find out more about Paul at Paul Cockshot. .co.uk. You write that capitalism is inefficient because of the misleading signals that come from monetary calculation. Low wages mean that it constantly underestimates the true cost of labor. This does not just apply to capitalism. It happens wherever costs are estimated in terms of money, wages, not hours of labor. The system of monetary calculation used in the USSR also generated the wrong signals when it came to a rational use of labor. Only by a transition to a fully communist system of economic calculation could the USSR have escaped its terminal stagnation. Is capitalism inefficient because it suppresses wages? Would capitalism be more efficient with higher wages? And if so, then why doesn't the market just give higher wages to make capitalism more efficient? Well, it is more efficient when there are higher wages and you get um, rapid development of technology in the, or more rapid development of technology in those parts of the capitalist world where wages are higher. The economic historian Allen has sh shown pretty convincingly that the Industrial Revolution occurred in England and not in other European countries because England was the only country where actual real wages were relatively high and hadn't been falling as they were in most in Europe. That, that made the employment of machinery worthwhile here where it wasn't worthwhile in, in France and Italy, which had been more developed in the past. So yes, it does force economic development, but it's against the interest of any individual capitalist to have high wages, so that the capitalist class as a whole is very rarely um, in favor of high wages. You can see that there were brief periods, what, what's, what's often called the period of Fordism, when high wages were approved of, and you even had people like the Republican Party in the U.S. in their platform in the 1950s advocating higher wages and strong union rights. But that's quite exceptional. Uh, usually, because it goes so much against the individual interests of, of individual firms, they want low wages. There's a difference between the private interest and the system interest. Right, right. Uh, you point out that the precondition of any society is the reproduction of people. This is the most basic in the sense of fundamental branch of the division of labor, but it's something that is contemporary society, that in contemporary society appears as not part of the economy. Instead, it appears as just family life, something that is private rather than social. Capitalist market society does not think of an activity as economic unless it involves money, but activities done for payment have been only a very small part of economic life until recently. Even now, they constitute barely half of economic life. If if we cast aside the historically narrow perspective that only paid work is work, it becomes clear that sex and the bearing, feeding, and socialization of children are the foundation of economic life. In capitalism, must the foundation of economic life be unpaid work? Does capitalism depend on that unpaid work in order to succeed? Well, in a sense, yes, because capitalism can't operate as a 
single encompassing mode of production because the production of labor power is not something that can be carried out under capitalist relations of production because for labor power to actually be produced as a commodity by a firm and sold by a firm you would actually have to have slavery not capitalism Uh, so whilst a slave economy could commercially produce people a capitalist economy can't do that because it would violate its preconditions of existence of, of free labor. So the, the the actual production of people has to occur in a separate economy, the domestic economy. And you point out that the internal structure of slave economies, their markets and processes of reproduction and how their limited markets and their squandering of human resources led them to stagnate. So if slave economies squander human resources, leading them to stagnate, why don't markets that depend on what are maybe today called slave-like wages and conditions, why don't they also stagnate? Because I'm wondering if the race... Well, they are. That's what's happening. Okay, because I'm wondering if the race to the bottom that globalization continues to pursue can lead to the market stagnating. And you're saying that that's what is happening, but we hear so much about it's not. So that's why I was curious about that. Well, I mean, the race to the bottom has been causing um, a set of phenomena which are very like what occurred in the late antiquity in the late Roman Empire. You're getting declining living standards for the people who work. You get a inability of the population to reproduce itself and therefore an inherent tendency of population to decline, which is then offset by importing labor in the in the roman society it was uh, the, the 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 population was captives from wars but uh, it it in modern imperialism wars are created to drive refugees into the metropolis it's essentially the same process but as the mode of production spreads the uh, inability to reproduce the the human population spreads to these new areas, and there are the areas which can have continued rapid reproduction of the population get smaller and smaller. You also point out that the nascent capitalist mode of production was inevitably imperialist. It evaded the Malthusian dilemma by extirpating the native inhabitants of the North American prairies and the Argentine Pampas to feed the burgeoning cities of England and New England. Did imperialism then not exist prior to capitalism? And if it did, how did capitalism change imperialism? Well, obviously, imperialism uh, is is much older. Uh, I mean, we're we're borrowing uh, a Roman word for that. Uh, so yes, empires existed before that, but the that is partly a dig at the idea that imperialism only developed in the late stage of capitalism. Uh, people who read Lenin tend to think that you know imperialism only started at the end of the 19th century, but that's very much influenced by um, the perspective of of Germany which was only starting to become imperialist uh, at the end of the... Uh, did we just lose Paul? I'm going to reestablish. All right, why don't you reestablish? Um, so we got cut off there, and I'm t- not too sure exactly. Oh, I was asking you about uh, did imperialism exist before capitalism, and it did, but so how did capitalism change imperialism? Uh, well, there are basically two phases of imperialism. Firstly, there's, there's the imperialism of the slave mode of production, and there's a, the imperialism of the capitalist mode of production. But it's complicated by the fact that the early phases of capitalism were also associated with the revival of slavery, and therefore, in some sense, their reversion to the social conditions of, of late antiquity. Um, so that if you, if you sort of look around at the um, the colonial states like Brazil and southern states of America, they, their social relations are much more like that of the um, the Roman Empire than of a capitalist world. But why did it occur? It occurred in both cases because you have a a society with a more advanced mode of production, surrounded by a barbarian society with a less advanced mode of production. 
and a society with a more advanced mode of production and technology is able to expand at the cost of the the surrounding barbarian society. And that was true in, in the ancient world and it was true in the early capitalist world. Um, the, the technological differences were even more marked for the early capitalist world, which made it easier to expand. And it also meant that it was possible for Britain and France, for example, to co conquer already developed non-barbarian societies in Asia, like uh, uh, India and Indochina, because capitalism was more advanced than the, the semi-feudal relations there. Their military technologies were more advanced, and therefore they had the kind of advantage that uh, Rome had over Gaul. You write that by 1900, the future seemed to lie with those great empires that dominated temperate agricultural plains, Britain, the United States, and Russia, without empires of their own to supply food imports and by, uh, and by colonial emigration to relieve the population pressures of early capitalism. Industrial developments in Germany and Japan were, it seemed, bound to falter. So began a period of inter-imperialist rivalry that tore the world for half a century and gave birth to a German project to replicate on the steps the extirpation and colonization already achieved on the prairies in the U.S. What do we miss in our understanding of the world wars when we do not, or we refuse to recognize that they were the outcome of imperial rivalries caused by capitalism and the need for colonies to have successful industrial development? Well, a story is told that um, the, the Second World War was a result of a bad man or a group of bad men, the Hitler or, or the Nazis. Now, there's a, a good uh, book by a German historian which says, the title is Hitler war kein Betriebunfall, that Hitler was no industrial accident. Hitler was part of the, the system and was um, inherent in the trajectory of the establishment of an imperialist state on continental Europe when the other big areas were already claimed by other empires. And this was very evident to people at the time. Everyone, no one shirked from talking about it a hundred years ago. Or let's not say, yeah, let's say 110 years ago. Everyone knew that there was a competition between empires to, to acquire new land. They were quite open about it. Now, that dialogue, or that, uh, not dialogue, that type of speech was dropped after the Second World War in the competition with uh, the USSR because the capitalist countries wanted to distance themselves from imperialism, particularly the United States wanted to, to do that, um, wanted to present itself as a non-imperialist country, and that was just the, the British and French that were imperialist, and to therefore give, construct a story about uh, the Second World War which removed it from imperialism and made it a matter of some peculiar circumstances in Germany. We have been speaking about capitalism a lot, and I wanted to talk about your writing on socialism as well. You write socialists have no uniform idea of what socialism is. Each socialist, or at least each group of socialists, proclaim that only its view of socialism is right and that all others are misleaders, enemies of the people, etc. Each socialist... Uh, he claims, implicitly assumes that the future socialist state will be headed by himself. True socialism is what that socialist will decree. All other views are dangerous heresies best dealt with by the firing squad. Could the same be said for... That, that's me quoting von Mises at that point. Yes, you're right. Uh, could the same be said for democracy or are socialisms in far greater numbers and variety? I don't quite understand your question there. Well, because um, sometimes people say that, you know, there's different, there's representative democracy and there's direct democracy, there's parliamentary democracy. Are there different kinds of socialisms? Are there more socialisms than democracies? Because I'm just curious about if, there, if that says something about socialism. Well, you, the, the term socialism originates as a, a political movement. 
um, in the 19th century. And therefore, it's initially applied to, to political parties and the programs of political parties. And these, since they're, they're competing parties, are not all the same. It's not until the 20th century that you actually have different forms of economy arising that you can start saying these are or are not, a, uh, are not socialist economies. Once you start placing it at the level of the economy, you have to say what are the characteristic features or laws of motion which d distinguished the socialist economies from capitalist economies. And then, obviously, you can have mixtures between the two of them. You can have economies which have socialist elements and capitalist elements. Um, if you if you take the official uh, discourse of the uh, the Soviet bloc, for instance, they didn't describe Poland as a socialist economy. They would describe Czechoslovakia as a socialist economy because Poland was seen as as still being a mixed economy. So, in a sense, you can say there are politically there are different socialisms in that uh, different socialist parties followed different policies and ended up with different mixtures of economic institutions. Keep in mind, Paul, that a lot of the questions that I'm going to be asking you about socialism are based on a U.S. point of view here, and uh, we have very little knowledge of socialism. We can we can hardly discuss liberalism without getting confused about that. So, uh, a lot of these questions are going to be kind of like, for instance, you write that while the communist parties tended to have a fairly clear idea of what they wanted to achieve, based for the most part on an emulation of the USSR, other socialist parties have been loath to give a concrete view of how socialism should be organized. On all sides, there has been a reluctance to examine the practical problems of uh, organizing a socialist economy. But many here in the States, they believe in a socialism that emulates, they often believe in the socialism that emulates what is often described as a Scandinavian model, that Norway and Sweden, Finland and Denmark show how socialism should be organized. Do the varied Scandinavian socialism models do they actually show how uh, socialism could be organized? Are they actually socialist? Um, it's not clear to me why Americans think Scandinavia is a more of a socialist economy than, say, Britain or France in the 1970s. Why Scandinavia? Uh, Perhaps there was, I don't know whether the, the level of income inequality was slightly lower in Scandinavia than in, in France, but the, all the European, sorry, not all European countries, but all the European countries in which there were strong social democratic parties um, had substantial measures of welfare states introduced. They had... Um, Elements which were in the original program, for instance, that Marx wrote for the French Socialist Party about free education, free health care, uh, those were in the program he drafted for the French Socialist Party in the 1880s. Now, those were achieved. What went beyond that varied so that uh, the, the Swedes actually went made very little progress at establishing state-owned industries compared to the socialist parties in Britain and France. And by, by the mid-1970s, more than half the housing stock in Britain was state-owned, probably around half of the industries were state-owned. So the, the, the policy of state ownership and public ownership was given much more prominence in Britain than Scandinavia. Now, it's possible the reason Scandinavia is... Um, you know, held up as an example by American socialists is that it's the most mild form of, of, of uh, social democracy. 
you write that for the communists from the 1960s or 1930s to the 1960s, if you wanted to know what socialism was, you just had to look at Russia. For other non-communist socialists, the issue was more problematic. Although the great majority of socialists during the period from the 1930s to the 1950s took things at face value and accepted that Russia was socialist, there was always a minor minority who, who did not. And in Western Europe during the last 50 years, such views have probably come to represent a majority of socialist opinion. Was the Soviet Union any more the embodiment of what it means to be socialist than the U.S. is the embodiment of what it means to be democracy? Do either define the political ideology that they claim to pursue? Well, um, the U.S. has defined democracy to be what it is. That's not what democracy originally uh, was, and we have previous historical examples of it. The, in the, the difference is that with um, socialism, we didn't have previous historical examples. Um, the, the, the Soviet economy was the first socialist economy. And therefore, by being the exemplar, it defines it. Um, you, you don't create new social relations out to the top of your head. You, you create them through the actual process of um, developing a society and experimenting with how you can get it to work. You, so th those who, want, who say, oh, it's, it wasn't socialist, are in generally doing that as a substantial revision to, to what the way people originally were using the term socialism in, in the early 20th century. It would be very hard put for anyone to say that the things they were doing in, in Russia at that time didn't correspond to the, at least in general, the objectives that socialists have been agitating for before the First World War. You write that the 1917 revolution was no more able to establish the socialist mode of production from the revolutions of 1776 or 1799 were able to establish the capitalist mode of production. The establishment of socialism in Russia, as with the establishment of capitalism in North America and France, came later with a sequence of changes in production technologies and economic relations. It took France until... 1900, over a century after the revolution, to achieve the degree of urban industrial development that Russia achieved in less than a quarter century after 1917. Arguably, the transition to capitalism in France and that to socialism in Russia was put complete and wasn't put uh, was put complete. I don't know, sorry, was not complete until the 1960s. Why is the transition to socialism faster? And are concerns that many have over a slow transition to socialism exaggerated? I mean, why was it faster? Well, it's because the social states, by monopolizing the surplus product and preventing it being consumed by a, a in luxury consumption of the upper classes, were able to channel the surplus product into industrial development so that the rate of urbanization and industrial development was much faster. Um, if you, even the sort of mixed socialism and state capitalism they have in China is able to, to, to do that much more than a private capitalist economy is. So you see very much more rapid rate of industrialization in China than, for example, India. You also point out that socialism arose first as philosophical movement in the early 19th century. At that stage, socialist thinkers were willing to advance quite detailed utopian plans for the reorganization of society. To what extent is the reason socialism is uncertain or has very varied different kinds and varieties is that our view of utopia is also uncertain, and we also have very, a variety of different views on, uh, on utopia. Um, I would say, if anything, there has been cons less willingness to put forward utopian ideas in the late 20th and early 21st century than there was in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, you don't get many novelists like H.G. Wells or, or, or Morris or Bellamy portraying socialist societies. Uh, 
I mean, the only person I can think of is Ursula Le Guin uh, in the modern period. That kind of utopian uh, novel uh, has largely disappeared because of the uh, the, the debacle of the, the, the 1980s. One last question for you, Paul, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We have been speaking with computer engineer Paul Cockshot, author of How the World Works, the Story of Human Labor from Prehistory to the Modern Day. You can find out more about Paul at his website, paulcockshot.co.uk. His last name is spelled with two Ts. Our final question for you, our question from hell for you, Paul, is what is more likely to cause climate change, capitalism or communism? Uh, Must we become communist in order to survive? Is it socialism or die? I think it's easier for a communist economy to plan ahead to develop non-fossil fuel forms of power and to engage in the long-term development for that than it is for capitalist economies. You've only got to look at uh, where has the impetus for the fall in cost of photovoltaics come from? It's come from the Chinese government deciding to undertake mass production of of photovoltaic uh, power units, which has brought the power price down to where it can compete with with fossil fuel. Just um, individual private capitalists competing failed to do that. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. I found this book absolutely fascinating, and everyone should check out your work. Again, the name of Paul's book is How the World Works, the Story of Human Labor from Prehistory to the Modern Day. You can find his other books and all of his writing at his website, paulcockshot.co.uk. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks, and thanks for having You've obviously read the book carefully to ask all those questions. (laughs) I'm impressed. Thank you very much, sir. I'm more impressed by you. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. And there's only one entry this week. I thought I missed something, but I think there's only one entry this week from Ronaldo. On February 28th, 1958, 62 years ago this Friday, on a cold, rainy morning near Prestonburg, a small town in eastern Kentucky, school bus driver John DeRosset was driving 48 elementary and high school students down winding U.S. Route 23 when he rounded a right turn. Oh, come on, Ronaldo. Jesus, criminy. That's the way to start off a Monday morning. And unexpectedly encountered a tow truck pulling a pickup out of the ditch alongside the bank of the Big Sandy River. So bus, and not any bus, but a school bus, which for those who do not live in the U.S., school buses here suck, unless you're rich, and most of us are not rich. So a lot of tooth chippers out there, as in the ride is so rough while you're screaming from the amusement park-like ride, your front teeth hit the bar on the back of the seat in front of you. School bus, tow truck, pickup, river. Unable to stop in time because, again, a school bus in the United States, the bus swerved, clipped the end of the tow truck, hit a parked car and slid down the embankment, landing in the ice-cold river below. For a few minutes, the bus remained afloat, and as the strong current carried it downstream, some of the older, stronger children, because Darwin, managed to escape out the near rear emergency door of the bus and swim to safety. But 26 children were killed along with the bus driver in what remains the most deadly school bus accident in U.S. history. And if that does not make uh, rotten history, nothing will. The bus was not found until three days later, and it took more than two months for rescuers to recover the bodies of all the children, some of which were found dozens of miles downstream. Jeez, I hope those divers got time and a half. As bad as it was, the disaster could have been even worse. According to one student, the same driver had taken them to school the previous day in a different older bus on which the rear emergency door had been wired shut because, again, 
school buses in the U.S. We really care for our children here. Shortly after the accident, two new songs about it received airplay on country music radio. Of course they did. And country music, to be honest with you, I'm disappointed you only had two songs. The country songs that did hit the airwaves related to the horrific events were the tragedy of bus... The Tragedy of School Bus 27 by Ralph Bowman, a real toe-tapper, which got all the kids dancing at the malt shop. And No School Bus in Heaven by the Stanley Brothers, which is which by the title seems to condemn all the school kids to hell. And Stanley Brothers, that's totally effed up. That's rotten history, and this is hell. And to be honest, screw the Stanley Brothers. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays live? This is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. on thisishell.com. Uh, real excited about this. We have Shuja Haider on to talk about his outline piece, The World's Biggest Threat to Democracy is I'm, the Democratic Party. I'm positive he's been on before, correct? No, Assad Haider has been on. Oh, that's, that's, his, that's his brother. Actually, I'm trying to get Assad Haider back on the show next. No kidding. They're, they're actually related? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. Uh, anything for... Let's just save everything for the rest of the week. We'll tease that later on. So... Suja Hyder on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I want to thank Paul Cockshot, Alex Jerry, Ronaldo Magaldi. Thanks, special thanks, special, special thanks to Theron Humiston. He's been doing a lot of work on our studio. And thanks to everybody who are Patreon subscribers because of your support for the show. We are going to be able to replace our board this week or in the very near future. And uh, this, all the hissing and any problems that you might be having with audio are going to be completely taken care of let's not say any most of them most of them i think i think i think this is going to cure the situation a lot of it you're right you're right you're right truly revolting radio this is hell talk to you tomorrow thank you for listening to this is hell for more interview hell and to support the show visit thisishell.com